You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. Early in my ministry, I I would often do a weekly children's sermon. I've not done that since I've been here in Van Alstine, but I felt it appropriate to do one today in light of uh, what happened up here at the Advent Candles this morning. Uh, I tr- trust me, that was not a cruel joke on Reagan, okay? Uh, she didn't do anything wrong. Uh, here's the deal. These candles are not actual wax candles, okay? We were having a problem with the candles melting down, right? And so our very intelligent children's director said, I'm going to order some of those that are filled with oil and have a wick in them. Well, as it turns out, if there's no oil in them, they won't burn, right? Okay? Here's the lesson. Oil in Scripture is a type of the Holy Spirit, right? Who indwells us, right? You can't effectively shine your light for Jesus if you don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling you uh, and empowering you. And so there's your children's sermon for the morning, okay? Um, I, I might go as far as to say some of you look like the two candles that are lit. Others of you, you get the point. Um, yeah. Let me also address something else real quickly. You may have seen uh, the announcement or the notice that came out in the uh, email newsletter uh, that starting on January the 8th, uh, the early service, the 830 service, will be moving into the Family Life Center. While I know that that doesn't impact most of you uh, at all, uh, let me me just share some uh, reasoning behind that, okay? Most of you are aware that the building across the street is well over 100 years old. It was built in 1919, okay? And so, uh, as you can imagine, it is showing its age. In fact, in many ways, it is on life support, okay? So we're doing everything that we can to maximize uh, that building as best we can without spending a ton of money on it, okay? That's one thing. And so, um, most of you are aware that um, we have recently uh, started to do some work on the downstairs entrance uh, from the street level into the basement, Uh, Some of you who don't have younger kids, you maybe have never used that entrance. Probably a good thing that you haven't. But um, at any rate, uh, we started digging into that. A construction crew did and discovered uh, we got some issues here that are even more significant than we thought or imagined. And so we called in a licensed structural engineer to take a look at it, okay? And so here's the the long, make a long story short, we are going to lose that entrance, okay? That entrance was added after the fact. It was not a part of the original building. They basically just cut into that stairwell to get down into the basement. And so uh, now what, what has to happen then is steel has to be put in down there to reinforce all of that, okay? Um, that's not to say that it's unsafe for you to go up the steps or anything like that, but we're about to lose that entrance. And far worse than that, according to our children's workers, we're about to lose that bathroom downstairs, okay? So... That all becomes a huge problem, okay, a huge problem for us. And so, um, not only that, but our community groups are growing. We're needing more space for those. 
Uh, and so we feel that the best thing at this point is for us to uh, get moved over here with even the 8.30 service. Now, we will likely be back over there for baptism if necessary and some of those kinds of things. So it's still usable for us, but the main entrance up the stairs will have to be used far more than it has been, okay? And so here's the other thing. If you're not aware, uh, we are still on track to be moving to a new facility in the fall of 2023, okay? That is still very much in sight. Uh, looking forward to that, but here's what you may not realize. Even then, we will be maintaining two campuses, okay? So a lot of this is preparing us to best utilize the two campuses, especially on Wednesday nights. So we're going to try to maximize, uh, get every bit of life out of that building that we possibly can in the best way that we can. So um, you can't make all that happen in just a matter of a few weeks when it's time to move to the new facility. So part of this involves uh, a shuffling of a lot of things. And so that's going to be happening after the first of the year. You may actually hear a plea or two for some help uh, to move some things over there, and uh, we would really greatly appreciate your help. But a lot of moving parts, uh, just a lot of, a lot of things. We, we know that a lot of the things right now, and for a long time actually, haven't been um, ideal necessarily. And you as a church have shown a great deal of grace and patience and all of those things. And I'm just going to ask that you continue to do that. And so, again, I know that doesn't impact most of you because you're a regular attender here in the 11 o'clock service, uh, but our friends in the 830 service will be moving over here at 830 starting on January the 8th. Now, when we made that decision and put out that notice, uh, we failed to, uh, to think that through in the sense that this morning was the last service over there at 830. Um, so, that's, uh, I know, because next Sunday we're in here, all one service. The next Sunday we're in here, all one service. And then you have January uh, the 8th. The cool thing is we had a baptism over there this morning. And so uh, we went out with a bang. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So um, John chapter 1 is where we are in God's word. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, born in Germany in 1904. He was actually coming of age as a scholar, as a teacher, a pastor, when Adolf Hitler uh, rose to power. And early on, uh, he was convinced of the great evil uh, of the Nazi ruler. And so Bonhoeffer struggled naturally with the role uh, that a Christian would play in a country being led down such a cruel, destructive path. So at the height of World War II, Bonhoeffer joined a resistance movement. He was eventually arrested uh, for helping a group of Jews escape to Switzerland, uh, later implicated in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and after two years of imprisonment in concentration camps, he was executed along with a handful of um, resistance members. Oddly enough, his execution took place just four weeks before the fall of the Nazi regime. While in prison, Bonhoeffer wrote letters to family and close friends. And in one particularly sobering letter... He described his decision to join the resistance. He knew that even if they were successful in their resistance, his life would never be the same. He knew that it was a life-altering, life-changing decision. And he said this one decision would ultimately define him. Well, we're in a sermon series called Person of Interest. It's a walk through the Gospel of John. And as we continue our study of John, we're learning that each one of us faces a life-defining moment, much like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So not only is it important what we know and what we understand about Jesus, but what do we do with that understanding? 
We've already learned from John's thesis statement in chapter 20, verse 31, that he has written these things that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. John wrote his gospel to reveal the identity of Jesus so that we might respond in belief. Not just so that we can have more facts about Jesus, not just so that we can read a, a, biograph, a, biographical, a, a biographical account uh, of a historic figure. It's so much more than that. What we do with Jesus is truly life-changing and has eternal implications. So this morning we're still in the prologue to John's gospel where he gives us four reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is God. I want to run over those real quickly for us. He makes it clear here in his prologue that Jesus Christ is eternal, has no beginning and no end. Jesus Christ is the creator, all things made by him. He is the source of life, the sustainer of life. Nothing remains alive apart from him. And Jesus Christ, though fully human, fully, perfectly reveals the Father. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what the word incarnation is all about, in the flesh. Jesus is the face of reason. It's why John chose the word logos here in John chapter 1. I remind you from a couple of weeks ago, he's writing into a, a philosophical culture of that day, not a lot unlike our day. They were wrestling with truth and so forth. And so this word logos would have been uh, very common to them. It's the word from which we get our word logic, and so he was appealing to them saying, he is the very personification of the truth that you are seeking, that you're trying to find. He is the word, you might say, the final word. I know that became popular a few years ago for somebody to go, word. Like, it's like, like this, is the, this is the truth. <laughs> That's what John is saying here. He is the very face of reason. He is the face of light and life. He's the face of perfect love. So let's look together as we continue in John's prologue here, picking it up in verse number 6 of John chapter 1. He writes, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Back in 2005, uh, Nike uh, launched an ad campaign. And if you were to drive through Cleveland, Ohio... I think I brought a picture of that. You would uh, perhaps see that billboard, uh, supposedly one of the largest ever, uh, like 110 feet tall, 165 feet across. I mean, it literally covers a large portion of that building. And if you can't see the words up there, it says, we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. I don't know the exact meaning uh, behind that ad campaign. I suppose it is to suggest that we are all witnesses to the greatness of a basketball player by the name of LeBron James. 
guy who was born not too far up the road in Akron, Ohio. And so naturally as a Cleveland Cavalier, he was like, he's our, he's our son, man. He's, he's us. And a lot of people would suggest, wrongly, that he's the greatest basketball player of all time. Okay, I don't mean to be controversial this morning. There's another ad campaign that said, be like Mike. That was much better than this one. Okay, that's all I'm going to say. But when you look at those words, it's a little sobering, isn't it? Especially when you know the biblical implications of the word witness. We are all witnesses to the greatness of a basketball player. Now, he's a good ball player, no doubt. But this morning, as we give our attention to verses 6 through 13 of John's prologue here in chapter 1, we find that word witness. And John, the author of this gospel, is writing about another John, John the Baptist, to John the Baptizer. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So let's talk about the witness for just a moment. Verse number six, it comes almost as a blunt interruption into like this lyrical introduction to the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's like verses one through five, and we're rocking along with some great truth about Jesus, who Jesus is. It unfolds the nature of Christ, his role in creation, revelation, and, and all this. And it's kind of in this tight poetic prose. And then verse number six comes, and it's as if John it kind of hits the brakes and abruptly shifts our attention away from the eternal word to a mere man. A witness. A witness. God could have used literally anything to announce the coming Savior. But he chose John the Baptist to bear witness. A man. And by all accounts, a pretty peculiar man. If you know anything about this guy, you know that he had a weird diet. He had a weird, weird wardrobe. He was just an odd kind of guy. John represented the old, but he was witnessing uh, to the new. John represented the law, but it was a wit- he was a witness to grace. He was not the light, but pointed to the light. The messenger is never the light. John was on mission. He pointed people to Christ. So let's talk about JTB's nature. If you've done uh, the Bible recap with Tara Lee Cobble, you know she often refers to John the Baptist as JTB. His nature is highlighted and emphasized almost as much here for what he is not and for what he, what he is. So the contrast between the word and the witness is really stark and really clear. Jesus is the eternal word who was with God from the beginning, before time, and who is God. He is the eternal one. John is not the word of God, but a man sent from God. And and though his birth was miraculous and his calling was remarkable, he was still just a man. Just a man. Jesus is the light shining in the darkness, unconquerable, incomprehensible. John was emphatically not the light, but merely a witness to the light. So why did John, the gospel writer, feel the need to take time to draw such a contrast here? Well, John the Baptist had been a very popular prophet who was, uh, had developed quite a following, actually. It was not uncommon in that day. Uh, that word disciple, it actually means someone who, who uh, follows after someone. A mathetes, it's a learner. And so many times you would be considered a disciple of someone that you followed. 
Uh, It's a lot like our modern-day apprentice. If I'm an apprentice to a plumber or an electrician, then the thought is that I'm, I'm essentially following them around from job to job, and I'm learning the trade. That's essentially what a disciple was. And so John had his disciples, those who followed him in his ministry and, and, and listened to his teaching and so forth. And so while he had this, uh, this following, it continued even after his death, as you might imagine. Well, many of John's disciples had become Christians. They were now following and worshiping Jesus, but not all of them did. Some of John's disciples were guilty of either downplaying Christ's nature We're making too much of John's. They had things out of balance. And so John the evangelist, the writer of this gospel, probably wanted to make sure that both Christians and the disciples of John fully understood the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus. So what about his mission? John's nature was merely human. We know that. But his mission was a vital one. He came as a witness to testify about the light that all might believe through him. And in describing John the Baptist's mission, John the Evangelist uses the term witness or testify three times. Just in these few verses, John comes as a witness to bear witness. So the word here is, is it's a legal one. It's used to describe testimony given in court. John uses this term witness almost twice as much as the other gospel uh, writers combined. So John the evangelist's use of the term witness or testimony or testify reflects his own mission as a gospel writer. He saw himself as bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is calling other witnesses to testify along with him. That you may believe and that you too may become a witness. It'll be a major theme throughout his book, especially when we get to the end of chapter 5. Now the mission of a witness is to tell the truth in support of a right outcome for a trial. If you're a witness and you choose to testify, it is because you know the truth and you care about doing your part to ensure that the outcome of the trial is right. The truth is vindicated. This was John the Baptist's goal too. He knew who Jesus was and he wanted to bear witness so that all might believe through his testimony. Uh, A number of years ago, I received a a jury summons. Uh, This is when we lived in South Texas. And so I uh, naturally reported for jury duty, and I was uh, selected to sit through Vaudoir or Vordire. Uh, and so, you know, they're asking all these questions and different things, and they're kind of sorting through and eliminating certain ones, you know, and they're going through that whole process. And lo and behold, I'm, I'm selected to sit on this jury uh, for um, this trial down in South Texas. And uh, I don't recall all of the details of what happened, but to uh, make a long story short, there had been a, uh, a, a citywide power outage. And so the traffic lights were not functioning properly and everything. And as a result of all that confusion and chaos and everything, there had been a traffic accident. Uh, and this all led to litigation and ultimately to a jury trial. And so I'll never forget when they, when they brought certain witnesses up there. They would naturally swear them in. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help you God, I, you know, all this. And they, they sit, and then, then, then they start the examination. You know, the, the attorney, they're questioning, and then there's cross-examination. And, and upon cross-examination, a lot of times what they were trying to do was establish the fact that perhaps this wasn't such a credible witness. I know at one point in this, in this trial, uh, the, the point was because of the weather, 
because the rain was coming down so hard when, when this all transpired, there's probably a good chance that you couldn't see as well as you thought you did. And so is it possible that you might have missed some details of what happened in that moment? So naturally, what that attorney was trying to do was essentially discredit this witness, essentially as not credible based upon some of these circumstances. And I think what we're seeing here is the importance of a credible witness. You see, you can't properly, effectively give witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ if you yourself have never placed your faith and trust in him. You may know him as a historical figure. You may even know that he's the central figure of Scripture. But if you have never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are not empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you can't properly be an effective witness. The witness. Let's talk secondly this morning about the true light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And so while John the Baptist was not the light, Jesus was and is the true light. John uses this terminology, true light, to emphasize Jesus as distinct from two other kinds of light. There's reflective light, and then there's false light. Other so-called lights may not be light at all. There may be darkness masquerading as light, such as false prophets and pretend messiahs. And certainly the Jewish people of the first century had, had, had certainly seen their share of these false lights, wolves in sheep's clothing. Some people thought that Jesus was just another of those uh, failed pretend messiahs. Not unlike the world in which we live. Many people in our day are flat out fed up with religion, with church. They may have seen many false lights, self-seeking, manipulative egomaniacs with manipulative people who manipulate people into funding the expansion of their personal kingdoms. We see stories of this all the time. They've read of the child abuse scandals covered up by cowardly church leaders, of adultery committed by pastors who preach against the immorality of the world, of the church accounting scandals, and, and the list could go on and on. They have had it with false lights. Religion seems to, uh, to them to be just another way for the rich to get richer and the poor to be taken advantage of. Well, Jesus saw the same realities in the manipulative systems of man-made religion in his day. That's why they're referred to as whitewashed tombs. You look real good on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead man's bones. And so he confronted them. John the Baptist saw them, confronted them as well. And so while Jesus is, was, and is the true light, John the Baptist was a reflecting light, which is what we are all to be as well. We can't be the true light of the world, but we can reflect the true light of the world. We can do what John did here, John the Baptist did, and show people the light of Jesus, point people to Jesus. Jesus, as the true light, gives light. His life is the light of men, we learned in verse number four last week. But not everyone recognizes him as the source of life, both physical and spiritual. I think we, we all pretty well understand what, what we would call common grace. Everybody experiences common grace. We see it pretty often. You see it in uh, doctors who care for the sick, for example, teachers who instruct, leaders who govern with justice according to wisdom. But only those who know that he is the true light and who have the light of salvation can reflect his light fully and consciously to the world. Only those who know him can tell others the full truth about him. 
You ever had someone come up to you and, and, and start telling you something about someone very close to you, maybe even a family member or a close associate, a close friend? And what they're telling you just doesn't line up with this person that you know. And so you're inclined to say what? I'm not sure that you know them very well. Because if you know that person like I know them, then I think you would have a different opinion perhaps. So you got a lot of people out there today who will talk about Jesus, kind of talk around Jesus and all this, but they don't really know Jesus. <laughs> the scripture tells us, even as you study the, the early church, uh, every person who stood up to proclaim the gospel, who, to preach the truth, it was all for the purpose of what? Sirs, we would see Jesus. It was said of those early disciples, it was obvious that they had been with Jesus. It wasn't obvious that they were especially learned or educated. They had been with Jesus. And it made a huge difference. And it allowed them to be an effective witness to the true light. Now, he says this light was coming into the world. John the Baptist's mission was, uh, as a witness was, uh, was unique. He had this calling from God to be the witness who would testify that the true light was coming into the world. In other words, he was the forerunner sent out ahead of Jesus to say to the people, he is coming, he is coming, and he did this very well. John prepared people for the coming of the true light into the world in two main ways, by calling them to repent of their sins and by testifying to the king. He told people to repent and be baptized. And he also told people, I baptize you with water. But among you stands one that you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. We find those words later here in chapter 1, by the way. So he says, at one point in his ministry, can you imagine being there that day? If there's any scene that I would want to be a part of, it's the day when John the Baptist is teaching. And he looks up and here comes Jesus. The one that he's been talking about. The one that he's been giving witness to. Been giving testimony to. And what does he say? Behold. Here he is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All those sacrificial lambs that have been slain. All that, there he, there's the ultimate Lamb of God. Slain for the sins of the world. I can just imagine that. The true light. That's what he bore witness to. He was a reflective light. Then I want us to notice thirdly this morning. The decision of a lifetime. From the strength of, of this testimony in verses 6 through 9, we, we turn to the sad reality of the world's ignorance and rejection in verses 10 and 11. It says he was in the world, the world that was made through him, by him, Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus is the creator, the word that framed the worlds. He is the light of man, the true light. And yet when he came into his world, the world that he had made, and spoke the truth to people whom he had created, and personified reason and truth and insight, the world simply did not know him. In John's gospel, the reason for the world's ignorance of Jesus is clear. The world is in rebellion against its creator and is mired in sin. You see, the ignorance of the world is not innocent. 
It's not as if the world could say, oh, Jesus, we just didn't recognize you. Sorry. No, the, the world does not know him because the world does not know God, but it, but it is in determined rebellion against God. It's described in Scripture as being at enmity with God, being at odds with God. And this brings the light, uh, the, the, to light the reality that people often don't know the truth because they don't want to know the truth. They choose to live in ignorance because they think it leads them to, to, to be free and to live as they please. I, I've actually talked to people who would say, you know, if it comes right down to it, I, I, I don't necessarily want there to be a God because I, I, I know if there is a God, then I would be accountable to him. So we see Jesus confronts this attitude in chapter 8, and we'll get there eventually, when he will tell people that they are not free, that their rebellion is actually slavery. And that the, only the Son can set them free indeed. But then what about his own people here? From a general statement about the world, John focuses in on verse number 11, gets a little more specific to this specific statement about the Jewish people. The world did not know its creator, but Jesus' own people did not receive their long-awaited Messiah. It's mind-boggling. John's condemnation of Jesus' own people is actually stronger than his statement about the world. The world did not know him, but his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people should have known who Jesus was, if anybody should. They had the witness of the scriptures. They had the public testimony of John the Baptist. They may have recognized or known who Jesus was, but they did not receive him. They rejected him, their savior, their king, the son of David and promised deliverer. And why did they reject him? John's, gospels will, John's gospel will make that clear in the first 11 chapters. It came down to unmet expectations and an unwelcome salvation. It's what we've studied in Galatians even. People in their rebellion continue to think, surely, somehow, some way, there's got to be a way for me to save myself. I, I've got to be able to handle this on my own. It's disbelief. But then I want you to notice what I believe to be one of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. Thankfully, after the sad realities of verses 10 and 11, we move to verse 12. And it begins with this very, very important word. But. But to all who did receive him, here's that decision of a lifetime. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. Here, believing is equated with receiving. To believe in Christ is to receive Christ. And this requires a new birth. It's a package deal. You see, you cannot be born again and yet not believe in Christ. But it, nor, nor can you believe in Christ unless you were born again. And so we find in verse 13 this clarifying statement. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we Christians, we use this phrase sometimes. It was really popular back in the 70s. Uh, became much more popular back in the 70s, I guess, with the, the presidential campaign of Jimmy Carter. But we, we use this terminology, I'm a born-again Christian. Born again. That's biblical terminology, actually. It's biblical terminology. How is one born again? It's, it's the crucial, crucial question that, that John now addresses. 
Remember, it was at the very heart of the conversation that Jesus has. We'll see it later in chapter 3 here with Nicodemus. It was to Nicodemus that Jesus said, you must be born again. Remember Nicodemus, a religious leader of his day, very learned by the world's standards, said, what do you mean? Like, I have to enter a second time into my mother's womb? How is that even possible? And he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. It's a rebirth. Remember Jesus breathing on the disciples, the rebirth we talked about? He's talking about it more right here, this rebirth. There are three ways given here which don't work and one that does. He says, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. So the first of the ways that, that does not work for one to become a child of God, as John says, is not of blood. Now what does he mean by that? John's referring to one's lineage. You're not a child of God merely because of your lineage. Being an ethnic Jew does not make you a child of God, nor does being uh, of royal or noble descent make you a child of God. Uh, Here in America, you you might win an election because you were a member of uh, the Kennedy family or the Bush family, for example, but that doesn't impress God. It's not of blood that one becomes a child of God. Nor is being born of God done by the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, those statements are very similar in their meaning. One does not become a child of God because of their own ability to be holy, nor from anything within yourself. If there's a a shade of difference in what it means here, not the will of man, might be referring to the head of a household. And the reason I say that is the word used in the original language here is not the word for man in general, but actually for husband. And so I think it would be accurate to say you are not saved because the husband or the head of the household is a believer. In other words, none of my four children will be able to stand before God and say, well, I, I'm, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus I'm a, because my dad was a pastor. My dad was a believer. Okay? You can't get saved by proxy. Okay? And, so, uh, and then here's where all the importance lies. Those who are the children of God were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But of God. So the birth is not dependent on your own self, your own actions, your own will, but is holy of God. God converts the sinner. God gives the gift of faith, and to God goes all the glory so that no man can boast, Scripture says. See, John is in perfect agreement with Paul and all the New Testament authors in saying that salvation is of God's grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Your status before God does not depend on your status here on earth, the prominence of your family, nor is your status before God dependent on your own righteousness or anything you can do or anything you have done. It is all of God. Just as a child born into this world, without any choice in the matter. So the child of God is born of God, entirely dependent on God. It's not as if there was a point in time back there where I said, you know what? I want to be born in the Methodist Hospital in Dallas, Texas on July the 27th, 1966. And I want to be born into the Lovely family. Because that's an amazing last name that no one will make fun of for the rest of my life, right? have any choice in that no it was all by God's design God's plan it was ordained by God the great thing of being born of God is that it makes you a child of God and an heir 
to all his promises. The promise is that all things are arranged in this world for the good of those who believe in Christ. The promise is that you have a forever home in heaven. The promise is eternal life, the resurrection of the body, knowing God face to face. And so faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as it is offered to us in the gospel. Those who receive Jesus... Those who believe in his name, as John says here, are those who have been born of God. And John emphasizes in very strong language just how different this kind of birth is from any ordinary human earthly birth. In fact, the, 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 the order, the word order in the Greek language is very, very important. And it creates and emphasizes this incredible contrast even more strongly. It says, who, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. But of God. So John is a witness. You know, being a witness, it's not always easy. Especially for John. It cost him his life. It cost him his life. It's interesting that the Greek word for witness is marturion. It's the word from which we get our word martyr. And that's for good reason. Very often throughout church history, those who have shown the brightest have received the world's rejection even to death. And I know in the comfort of our North American lives here, 2022, we think of martyrdom as something that happened way back when, right? There are people still today who wake up every day wondering if they'll make it through the day. Why? Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're witnesses to the truth, to the true light. I'm reminded on October the 16th, 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were two such witnesses. And as they went to be burned at the stake for their faithfulness to King Jesus, Latimer turned to his friend and his fellow bishop and he said, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. They were not the true light. But they were able to reflect the true light even unto death. And their reflection did become a light for many centuries, fueling one of the greatest reformations and later one of the most powerful missionary movements in the history of the world. Witnesses. And the truth is, if you're here today and you've turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, you know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. We're all witnesses. Not to the greatness of an athlete, but to the greatness of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not lost on me that in that image, LeBron's arms are spread out like this. I can only think of Jesus on the cross. We are all witnesses to the magnificence and the glory of none other than Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you an effective witness? the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me for just a moment this morning. I'm aware that each week that we gather here, there's very likely someone, perhaps a few, who are still searching. You know something's missing in your life. You're longing for something more. You're hoping against hope that you can somehow, some way, be good enough so that you can earn God's favor. And in the end, he will say, come on. I think some of the saddest, most sobering words in all of Scripture are found in Matthew chapter 7. That there will be those who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do good things? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do religious activities? Did we not, and Scripture says there, you'll say, depart from me because I never knew you. I never knew you. So if you're here today and you've never taken that step of faith whereby you acknowledged that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, that you can't save yourself, and so you're relying fully in faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that is your invitation today to take that step of faith. I would love to spend some time with you, to open God's Word with you, to show you how you can know that you are reconciled to holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that I've made that decision of a lifetime. And I have turned from my sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And the invitation to you is simply this. Will you be a witness, an effective witness to reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the most effective way. Father, we thank you and praise you that even as we make our way through the Christmas narrative, we see again some very ordinary people In the society of their day, the outcasts in many respects, the shepherds would be said of those individuals, they smell like sheep. And yet you sovereignly ordained that those people, very ordinary people, would come and be eyewitnesses to the incarnation. Scripture tells us there that they left went and told about all that they had seen and heard. They're witnesses. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, still walking in spiritual darkness, I pray that by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they'd be drawn to you. I pray, God, that we would all, those who have turned from their sin to faith in Jesus Christ, would be the witnesses that you've called us and commissioned us to be. And that we can personally give testimony to what it is to have your sins forgiven. To be reconciled to holy God, not because of anything you've done or ever could do, 
because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.